three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. Put down um, on your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'll be joined by best-selling author and professor Dr. Daniel Lieberman to explore issues including how dopamine explains why we only want things until we get them and then we don't want them anymore. Why the key to happiness involves a transition from future-oriented dopamine to present-oriented neurotransmitters like serotonin. How to tell if someone has a dopaminergic, dopamine-driven personality. Why we tend to go through life always at the same base level of happiness. And finally, how to manipulate the dopamine circuits in your brain to solve your problems through dream incubation. All that and so much more on another episode of... Nervous Habits. Okay, so the summer is in full swing. The weather's gorgeous, the sun is out, and by the time that this episode drops, most everyone should be fully vaccinated, uh, which is encouraging because that that might mean you guys that that life will be back to normal as it was before, um, you know, before 2020. And yeah, life is—I mean, life is is crazy busy for me right now. Um, I just finished my second full year of law school, um, entering the summer. You know, uh, a working working full-time over the summer with, with a law firm in New York, and uh, it, it goes by quick. I mean, it literally feels like, you know, it feels like just the other day that I, I was applying to law school and then driving down in a, uh, in a truck at like 20 miles an hour because um, I had a bunch of <laughs> glass in the U-Haul, uh, driving down to D.C., you know, dropping my stuff off, and then circling around France for one last hurrah before law school began. It really, really went by quick. And now in just a couple months, I'll be starting my final year. Um, so ah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's crazy how, you know, how, how quickly life moves. And uh, that means that I'm going to be saying goodbye to DC soon. This is my last full year in, uh, in Washington, DC before I, I make the move to New York back to New York for work. Um, and uh, I sort of wish that I experienced DC more over the last um, couple of years, but I do have some more time to make sure that I check all of the museums and the sites off of my uh, off of my bucket list. I decided to, to keep, um, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks back that I was fostering a dog for a couple of weeks, a puppy, and you know, it was it was tricky, but I decided to, to adopt um, Penny is her name. And uh, it's so far, it, it's been, it's, it hasn't been easy. Um, like, like I said the other day, you know, it's amazing and infuriating at the same time. But uh, yeah, like it's, I guess, I guess she's going to be sticking around. I guess she'll be a part of my life for, for a long time. Um, but uh, yeah, Penny is, is a lot of work and obviously my hands are full with law school and, and of course, the pod, as always. But I'm excited to release uh, some some really fun episodes over the summer, beginning uh, with this one, which is about dopamine. Now, it's interesting because lots of people will use the word dopamine in sort of like their everyday speech. Like, oh, you know, I got such a dopamine rush. Or you'll read an article that talks about like the dopamine addictive patterns of social media and technology. So it's it's very much like in vogue, the the expression of dopamine but i don't think a lot of people understand like 
how dopamine works in your brain and, and the and you know the dopamine pathways in certain circuits of your brain and dopaminergic personality certain people who are more are more influenced by dopamine than others and and to be honest it really does explain a lot when you think about the applications of, of dopamine it really applies to um, all different contexts from you know relationships to short-term long-term happiness um, to you know whether or not you're satisfied in your career um, it can all really be be explained by um, looking at how the dopamine uh, system uh, is activated in your brain. And that's part of why I wanted to to chat with today's guest, Dr. Uh, Daniel Lieberman. Dr. Lieberman actually wrote a best-selling book. You might have heard of it a couple years ago. It's called The Molecule of More. And it's really about how dopamine can uh, you know, really explain a lot of life's conundrums from love to sex to, to creativity. Um, you know, why are we obsessed with things that we want and bored when we get them? Uh, why do people, you know, fall out of love so quickly and, and become indifferent? Um, politics, you know, why, why are some people uh, hardcore liberals and, and others diehard conservatives can, can all be addressed by dopamine. And just some quick background on Dr. Lieberman. Uh, Dr. Lieberman is a professor and vice chair for clinical affairs in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at George Washington University. University. He studied the great books at St. John's College and attended medical school at NYU. Dr. Lieberman has published over 50 scientific papers and book chapters and is a recipient of the Karen Foundation Research Award. He's also the author of the book, as I mentioned, The Molecule of More, which is which has been translated into eight languages. He's provided insight on psychiatric issues for the United States Department of Health and Human Services, the U.S. Department of Commerce, and the Office of Drug and Alcohol Policy. So Dr. Lieberman and I talked about a ton of different issues, you know, dopamine uh, and addiction and impulse control and long-term happiness. We talked about dopamine and dreams as well, but there was still a lot that we didn't get a chance to cover, um, you know, just because I didn't want to <laughs> sit with Dr. Lieberman for, for three hours. And so after the conversation, I'm going to have... Uh, a good amount of follow-up to talk through with you guys about some of the interesting takeaways and factoids with respect to dopamine that we didn't get a chance to cover. Uh, but having said that, it was a terrific discussion. And without further ado, my conversation with Dr. Daniel Lieberman. Dr. Daniel Lieberman, welcome to Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. I, I don't know about you, uh, Dan, but I feel like the word dopamine has become uh, you know, part of the zeitgeist in the last few years, whether it be getting your dopamine fix from a drug or the dopamine squirt of, of checking your social media apps. Were you hearing a lot about dopamine growing up or is this sort of a, a recent development? It's really a recent development. I, I remember the very first time I heard it. I was in high school and um, from the very first, I was absolutely fascinated by it. Um, but that was before the internet. And so it's not like I could go out and research it. Um, and so it sort of fell out. And then really it wasn't until we came back to the uh, internet, the internet evolved that it, um, it started becoming something that was central to uh, what you'd hear about. And dopamine is actually a relatively new discovery, right? In the, in the last couple decades. It is. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, um, come along with a neurotransmitter understanding of the brain, when we really started searching for chemicals that do different kinds of things in the brain and orchestrate different kinds of behaviors. Most people think that, Dan, when, when they hear about dopamine, they think it's like a feel-good pleasure hormone. But something that I found interesting about the book is again and again, you come back to the argument that it's not actually the case that dopamine is just a feel-good pleasure hormone. What's something that most people uh, just don't quite understand about dopamine? Well, I think that... Um, it, it's worthwhile to start out thinking about different kinds of ways of feeling good. Uh, making you feel good is part of what dopamine does, but as you point out, it may not be the most important thing. 
but let's think about dopamine feel good. One of the essences of dopamine is that it's about the future. Uh, dopamine is about becoming excited for getting things that we don't have. And so um, it, 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 there's a great quotation in uh, Winnie the Pooh. I don't know if you're a fan of Winnie the Pooh. Uh, maybe 20 years ago, but hit me with it. Christopher Robin asked him, uh, what do you like best in all the world? And um, of course, the first thing he thinks of is honey. Mm. But then he thinks that there's a moment just before he starts eating honey that's even better than actually eating the honey. And that's dopamine. And we can think about it in our own lives. You know, think about the last time you bought something that you really look forward to. Uh, maybe you spent a lot of time researching it on the internet. Um, maybe it gave you an enormous amount of excitement in your life thinking about getting this. And then when you got it, things changed kind of quickly. Mm. Um, it, it, it wasn't as nice having it as it was anticipating it. Yeah, just like Winnie the Pooh found that eating honey wasn't quite as nice as thinking about eating honey. Is that related to the hyperbolic time discount? Like, like when it comes to pizza, if, if you know, let's say it's 9 p.m. on a Friday and I want to order a pizza uh, and at 9 p.m. I place the order and then I'm waiting for the 915 and it comes at 930. Every minute that I'm waiting for that pizza, my, uh, you know, feeling of pleasure that I get from the pizza decreases. So by the time it actually arrives, I'm, you know, I, I, I almost don't even want the pizza anymore compared to when I ordered it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that that's, that's, that's a result of unfortunately us being trained uh, to expect immediate gratification in this day mm. and age. Um, hyperbolic discounting is a little bit different. Um, and, and I think that's worth talking about. Um, you know, would you rather have a um, hundred dollars right now or $110 in a month? Mm. Well, most people would say I'd like a hundred dollars right now. I, I assume you'd, you'd rather have that. Um, but, but if you think about it, if you take $110 in a month, um, you're getting a 10% return on your money in 30 days, which is absolutely unheard of in the investment world. But the brain doesn't work that way. Um, the brain thinks that things that are now are much more valuable than later. And the reason for that um, actually has to do with multiple dopamine circuits in the brain there is a dopamine circuit that is called the desire circuit, but we named it that in the book as sort of a nickname. And that makes you want things right now. There's another circuit though, that we call the controlled circuit that looks farther out. And it, it looks for things that are gonna improve your life on a longer term basis. So the desire circuit says, eat the donut because it's gonna taste great. The control circuit says, you know what? leave the donut alone because it's not good for you. Hmm. And hyperbolic discounting occurs because that desire circuit, unfortunately, is much stronger than the long-term planning controlled circuit. Hmm. Yeah, I think that that makes perfect sense. And most people don't know about the control circuit, Dan. Most people think about dopamine and, and they think about this like um, one-dimensional uh, feel good, you know, almost like impulse control. Uh, and, and they don't necessarily think about the other, the other sides of it. Yeah. Yeah. The, the feel good is what we think about with dopamine. G getting back to that, that, that dopamine feel good. I, I think it's worthwhile characterizing what it feels like. It's anticipatory. It's exciting. It energizes us. It makes us optimistic that uh, our life is going to get better. And, and these are all wonderful, wonderful feelings but I'd like to contrast it with a different kind of way of feeling good. And that is 
feeling satisfied and fulfilled. Unlike dopamine, which is energizing and exciting, this kind of feel good is, um, is calming. Um, it, it makes us feel like everything is okay right here, right now. That's a present-oriented feeling good as opposed to the future-oriented feeling good of dopamine. And it comes about through the activity of different chemicals, chemicals such as endorphin, endocannabinoid, um, oxytocin. So when you're going, if you're going to understand dopamine, you have to understand the different kinds of feeling good. Um, dopamine, we often talk about as a reward. It makes you feel good for working hard. Mm -hmm. The other kind of feel good, the, the here and now in the present moment feeling good is not about work at all. It's about appreciating the things you have rather than desiring the things you don't have. Yeah, and you talk about that in the book, the distinction between future and, and present neurotransmitters. So uh, when it comes to like long-term relationships, for example, you talk about how at first when you're in like the honeymoon phase, um, the future-oriented dopamine feel-good um, molecule actually uh, sort of, you know, explains why people are motivated to be in those relationships. But then eventually for longer lasting relationships, you actually have to transition to present oriented neurotransmitters like, like serotonin. Yeah, it, it is. Dopamine is associated with the feeling of what we call being in love. Mm -hmm. It's that passionate insanity uh, that makes us feel godlike. And it's been described as the most uh, intensely pleasurable feeling human beings probably ever experience. that passionate being in love. Um, the problem with it is it doesn't last. On average, being in love only lasts about 12 months. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues that couples face is that um, they often mistakenly think that when this naturally comes to an end, that means the relationship has come to an end and they need to go and find someone else in order to rekindle the insanity of passionate love. But um, it doesn't matter how many times they do it, it's always going to come to an end. And the only way to have a long-term loving relationship is to be able to trans, um, transform it into mm -hmm. a present-oriented here and now love, which is called companionate love. And um, again, it, it's a feeling of satisfaction with your partner, a feeling of contentment. The, the insane excitement is gone. The, the godlike transformation of the world is gone. But it can also be very pleasurable just knowing that there's someone whose um, life is deeply entwined with your own, someone you can count on, someone who's always there for you, someone who understands you better than anyone else in the world. It's not an easy thing to do to make that transition. It requires a certain amount of maturity, uh, but the rewards are very, very high if you're able to do it. So I want to make sure I'm following you because I think listeners are, are, you know, sort of perking their ears up for this segment. They can relate to exactly what you're saying with falling in and out of love uh, very quickly. So when you talk about the different stages of love, um, and, and this is something you mentioned quite a bit at the book, in the book, the first one is, it was passionate love. Is, is that correct? Yep, that's right. And that's, uh, that's uh, run by dopamine. Okay. And then after that would be uh, compassionate? I'm sorry, it's actually companionate. Companionate. Uh, because it, it feels like a, a special kind of friendship. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we hear a lot about oxytocin. Sometimes it's called the cuddle neurotransmitter. A better way of thinking about it is it orients us to relationships. Um, and it just makes us feel very comfortable with another person, very safe, very secure. 
Uh, it's a pretty terrific feeling. And unlike passionate love, it can last for decades. You know, passionate love and companionate love are both forms of erotic love. Mm -hmm. um, you know, typically when we say erotic, we think about sex, but um, that's not really what it means. Uh, it, it means the kind of relationship people form when they, um, when they have uh, passionate uh, love. Compassionate love may be a non-erotic form of love. That may be the kind of love we don't necessarily have for partners, uh, but rather for friends, um, for acquaintances, and, and maybe in the highest sense uh, for strangers when we're able to achieve universal love. Yeah, and something something else that that, that I found really intriguing um, was you address in the book that um, this this sort of picture can explain why love fades over time. So if, if folks are listening, Dan, and they're you know in a long term relationship or they've experienced a long term relationship where um, at some point they just you know physically, physiologically, psychologically they just weren't feeling the same. Um, uh, for lack of a better word, love or attachment to their partner. Uh, how how can dopamine figure into that? Yeah, so, um, you know, we live in a very dopaminergic world. We're constantly being bombarded by messages about how to make your life better. Um, you know, buy this product, uh, learn this self-help technique, um, take this vacation. You know, be, because of our, our, our capitalist economic model, which has its strengths and weaknesses, a lot of the messages we're exposed to are messages of dissatisfaction. Because in order to sell to someone, you have to make them unhappy with their current situation. And dopamine uh, being the molecule of more, uh, the molecule that makes us seek out a better future, um, that's the one that's always being stimulated. So one of the unfortunate consequences of that um, is that it's very difficult for us to be satisfied. And it's not that we're dissatisfied with our telephone or our car, or our shoes. It also makes us dissatisfied with relationships. And so when passionate dopamine love turns into companionate here and now love, a lot of times we don't recognize that there's a different kind of love there. We think, okay, the love's gone. I got no dopamine, I got no love. Mm. And so what we need to do is we need to swim upstream we need to go against the, our current culture of always wanting more, of never being satisfied, and really focus on gratitude. Um, I'm lucky to have this person in my life. Um, I'm lucky that there's somebody who's loyal to me, who understands me, who's got my back, who supports me, who has my best interests at heart. Um, the, these are not necessarily elements of passionate love, but they're pretty wonderful things that have the potential to dramatically increase the quality of a person's life. So, so in order to make that transition, it's about looking at what you have and um, trying to uh, be satisfied and grateful. Yeah, absolutely. I think also uh, part to, to add to that is, is, you know, the, this craving for, for novelty and, and, you know, for new experiences, I think that, um, and part of it has to do with the point that you're making just the sheer amount of options available when it comes to not just, you know, dating, but um, when it comes to like consumerism and, and commodities, the fact that, you know, when you're shopping for an overcoat on Amazon, it's not like you have one, one product that you from, you have thousands, um, which can be, you know, debilitating to some extent. So, you know, how can people sort of reconceptualize, whether it be in relationships or in another um, area of their life, uh, having, you you know, that craving for new experiences with the satisfaction with what they have, as, as you say. 
Yeah. So you've got to find balance. Now, I'm not saying that um, craving for new experiences is bad or, or that desire for dopamine pleasure is bad. It's just got to be balanced. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of people, when they enter the companionate love phase, they wonder, is there any way to bring back hints, sparkles of that passionate love phase? And the answer is yes. Um, when you experience new things, um, it will stimulate dopamine. And if you've got dopamine going and you're with that partner, it will reactivate echoes of the passionate love phase. Mm. And so couples have their favorite restaurants. They have their favorite vacation uh, destinations. They have a lot of favorite things they like to do together that are comfortable and, and satisfying. But if they want to bring back some of that dopaminergic passion, um, what they can do is try new things. Mm. They can uh, go to restaurants they've never been before. They can go to vacation destinations they've never been before. They can try activities they've never done before. That will bring some of it back, which is absolutely wonderful. They just have to remember that um, it's not going to be permanent. And they have to enjoy it as special occasions and not expect it to be the new baseline. So I think the key is, um, is balance. And, 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 you know, I think that the better you get at becoming satisfied with the present moment and not always wanting more, paradoxically, the more pleasure you're going to get when you do get that dopamine hit of more. It, it, it's kind of like if you eat donuts all day long, uh, a, a Krispy Kreme isn't going to do anything for you. Mm. If you haven't had a donut in two weeks, you're probably going to really enjoy it. Yeah. So the best way to amp up your dopaminergic pleasure is to get very good at gratitude and satisfaction with what you already have. It's like our parents told us from a young age, like everything in moderation. You know, if, 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 you, uh, if you have a donut every day, it doesn't become special. But if it's, if it's a treat every Sunday, you know, I mean, how, how many kids would eat dessert every meal if they wanted to, right? Um, so I think there, there's definitely something to that. I, I want to take a step back and, and sort of talk through the, the neuroscience of dopamine, because I think a lot of listeners sort of don't, you know, can't really conceptualize what we're talking about um, when we talk about dopamine in the brain. So imagine, you know, if someone were to post an Instagram photo and receive a flood of likes and comments. Can you take us through, you know, what's what's happening moment by moment in the brain when they when they receive that notification that there are likes and comments on their Instagram photo? Yeah. So, um, you know, the brain is a highly tuned survival machine. And so evolution has uh, fixed circuits in the brain um, that keep us alive and keep us reproducing. So one thing that we've got is the dopamine desire circuit. And um, typically that goes off uh, when we are about to engage in natural behaviors that increase the likelihood of evolutionary success. So um, that would mean uh, consuming nutrients. Uh, we get it when we're very hungry and we're about to eat or we're very thirsty and we're about to drink. Um, it, it would mean reproductive activities. We get it when we're anticipating um, having sex. And it also means winning competitions. Um, because that winning competitions is going to give us access to food, reproductive partners, uh, shelter, and tools. And that's what's going on when people are getting all of those likes. Uh, it, it's a form of competition uh, that's putting them above the, um, the other people in terms of their access 
uh, to all of these good things. Um, it makes us feel important when we get it. It makes us feel optimistic. Uh, it makes us feel powerful. And so um, it, it's sort of an artificial stimulation of a circuit that was designed to go off for uh, things that are more directly related to evolutionary success. Yeah, and so much has been written about exactly that topic, sort of the exploitation of these, um, these you know, naturally occurring approval indicators. Um, and, and, you know, if we take the converse of that scenario, Dan, where instead of someone posts a photo and gets a flood of likes and comments, let's say someone listening posts a photo and receives zero likes or comments. They're sort of anticipating the dopamine that never comes. What, what happens in that case? Yeah, so these dopamine circuits... Um, fire at about five hertz per rest. Uh, that means they go off five times a second. Uh, when you get all those likes, when something good happens, they can zoom up to between 20 and 100 hertz. Hmm. But when you're anticipating a reward and the reward does not come, it can shut down to zero. And the way that feels subjectively is you feel um, resentful and deprived. So, so, you know, imagine that you have that donut every morning. Um, it's not giving you a lot of dopamine because you're not anticipating anything new in your life. Hmm. Um, you're kind of you're ticking away at five hertz, your baseline rate. But if you don't get that donut, you go to the store and the donut that you love is sold out or, or you're there and your phone rings and someone says, hey, drop whatever you're doing and come right away. And you miss out on your daily donut you're going to feel resentful and deprived. And that's how people feel when they don't get any likes. And it's even worse because if you don't get any likes, it's personal. So your self-esteem goes down. You start to wonder if everybody hates you. Um, it's a high price to pay. And I think you gotta ask yourself, does the reward of those likes justify the need to constantly chase that rabbit and the pain you feel um, when people ignore you, I think a lot of a lot of folks can, can can sort of relate to to both of those experiences, and and it's interesting thinking about you mentioned earlier um, the evolutionary basis of of why we have the dopamine circuit, and um, you can almost draw the analogy of you know anticipating the likes that never arrive and sort of preparing your um, your brain systems for that is almost akin to uh, anticipating a meal or a reproductive partner, and then when that doesn't happen, experiencing the letdown. And then, like you said, behaviorally, um, the, the, you know, loss of your self-esteem, um, onset of, of, uh, depression. So you can really see, you know, how these, you know, how dopamine figures into this. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I think you're right. We can, there are things we can do, um, to, we can't directly control these circuits in the brain. You know, we can't snap our fingers and say, help me to feel excited and enthusiastic but there are habits we can develop that are going to uh, make our brain chemistry more favorable. Um, if we know something not so wonderful is going to happen, we can prepare ourselves for it. So then when it does happen, it doesn't feel like the end of the world. Um, if I'm used to having a uh, donut every morning, I can remind myself, hey, there's gonna be some mornings when I'm not going to get my donut and I got to be ready for that feeling of disappointment. So when it hits, I can sort of take a step back and look at it objectively and say, well, no dopamine, resentment, deprivation. I can live with this. Um, we, we can say my whole life is going to be happier if I learn to be contented and satisfied. 
And so as one goes through life, one can develop the habit of paying attention to the good things in life and ignoring the bad things. And in some way, that's the opposite, I think, of what our current culture is teaching us to do. Our current culture is always saying, look for the bad things in the world. Uh, and, and I think it arises out of this, this wonderful desire to uh, make the world a better place through activism. But if you spend your life always looking for things that are wrong, always looking for things that hurt you or make you angry, uh, that's not a recipe for happiness, contentment, and satisfaction. And, and so I think we, we need to balance our desire to make the world a better place with a desire to realize that there's a lot of good in it. We need to recognize it. We need to enjoy it. For sure. Re reframe, reframing your mindset to, to, you know, focus on tempering your expectations and, and appreciating going back to like the, the here and now that you mentioned, as opposed to anticipating what you don't have. W what about people who have, you know, higher than uh, active dopamine uh, circuits? I think you call them dopaminergic personalities. How, you know, how can people listening know if, if they fall into one of those camps? Yeah. So, you know, we've talked a good bit about the desire circuit, uh, the uh, desire for immediate gratification, whether it's a donut, sex or likes on Facebook. Mm -hmm. um, people who have very high um, activity in this circuit um, tend to be somewhat hedonistic. Um, they're pleasure seekers. And oftentimes um, they're going after that hard dopamine hit. Um, they're not the kind of person who gets a big thrill by picking up the phone and calling their mother. They're more likely to want to go out to a club and um, listen to loud music and meet lots of exciting people. Um, they need a lot of stimulation. They pursue stimulation. Um, they may get into trouble with drugs and alcohol uh, going after the stimulation. They may get in trouble with... Um, um, with reckless sexual encounters or um, spending more than they can afford. Um, these are the people who are very dopaminergic with regard to the desire circuit. There's another circuit though that we just touched on, that's the control circuit. Uh, that's a circuit that makes people look farther into the future. Just like the desire circuit, it is about survival. It is about more making the future better than the present. But the long-term approach, rather than creating a hedonist, is more likely to create a workaholic. Hmm. Uh, somebody who can't stop working on the future and never takes the time to enjoy the present. And this kind of leads to the irony of the kind of people who are most able to afford beach houses, for example, are least able to enjoy them. Um, they can't just kick back on the beach and, and enjoy themselves. They're on the beach. They, they've got their phone, they're texting, they're working on their computer. These are uh, a different kind of dopaminergic person. Uh, people who um, are never satisfied with the present, but rather than seeking immediate pleasure, they seek constant long-term gain that they really can never enjoy. So a lot to unpack there, Dan. I mean, uh, first of all, I think I think you know uh, what you just mentioned is is uh, sort of reminiscent of, of the Billy Joel quote. It's like you know, life is what happens when you're too busy making other plans, or you know, Ferris Bueller, like life life moves uh, pretty quickly. I think 
lots of folks can relate to that. And then when you talk about sort of like the thrill seekers, the hedonists, I wonder, you know, there's almost like a causation problem. Is it the fact that they have these dopaminergic circuits that make them more disposed to seeking out, um, you know, those sensory pleasures and experiences and more at risk for addiction? Or or is it the inverse? Is it that um, they seek out addiction and and thrills and and hedonism and that in turn makes their dopamine circuits more active? How, How does that work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and, and it's a question that uh, drug abuse uh, researchers were very interested in. And um, Nora Volkoff, who uh, I believe is the uh, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, uh, many, many years ago, she addressed that question uh, by looking at brain scans. Um, and, and she found out it was the first that people seem to be born with a genetic vulnerability to developing substance abuse. Because there are some people who will use a drug uh, once, um, let's say cocaine, and they really don't like the way it makes them feel. Um, I've, I've, I've talked to lots and lots of patients who say, yeah, I used cocaine once or twice in uh, college, and uh, to be honest, I hated it. Other people will say, um, I used it and it was the best thing ever. I, I, I once um, attempted to treat an alcoholic uh, I was the fifth guy he came to, and, and I was no more successful than the other four. He said the first time he drank alcohol, it was as if the sky opened up and the heavenly choir began to sing. Hmm. Um, we can actually identify people who have these reactions based on genetic tests at this point. So um, very unfortunately, people are born with these dopamine systems. And, and that's why if you ask, you do see drug addiction running in families it gets passed down from father to son. It's unfortunate, but I think it also, it's, it's you know, there's a silver lining that people can sort of identify if, if they're, you know, higher risk and be more mindful, uh, you know, when it comes to things like substance abuse and, and drug addiction. You also talk in the book about how in another context, dopamine can explain our collective infatuation with uh, fast food. So can you give uh, listeners a sense of why that might be the case? Yeah, you know, so many products these days are designed around dopamine. Um, And um, I I think there's some real ethical issues about that because essentially what it's designed to do is reduce our ability to exert voluntary control over our behavior. The most dramatic example, of course, is drug addiction, uh, where addicts are fully aware uh, that the drug is ruining their life, but they're powerless to stop. Um, just today, I saw a news item, um, 70% of adults who vape nicotine uh, want to stop, but they cannot. So I, I think that people in other industries really envy the nicotine industry, um, the, where they have a product that people don't want to use, but they can't help it. And mm. so they're looking for ways to make their products more drug-like. Um, and the fast food industry is one of these industries And um, they find that by um, using fat, salt, and sugar, they can stimulate dopamine and they can um, minimize people's ability to make voluntary choices with regard to eating this food. Um, And that's part of the reason why we have an obesity problem in this country. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree that, you know, part of it has to do with the the high fat sugar calorie content. I also wonder whether impulse control figures into it. I remember uh, recently I read a study out of the Baylor College of Medicine, and it found that dopamine activity in the nucleus accumbens, the brain's reward center, 
can disrupt the brain's decision-making ability by interfering with the pre prefrontal cortex, the impulse control region. So do you buy that um, in addition to the sugar and high calorie content, impulse control figures into our uh, infatuation with fast food? Yeah, I think so. So you, you mentioned the nucleus accumbens, the reward center, mm -hmm. which in the book we call the uh, desire circuit and the prefrontal cortex, um, which is the most, um, the newest from an evolutionary point of view and gives us rationality and logic, we call that the control circuit. So which is stronger? Well, most of the time it's the reward circuit. And uh, the reward circuit is focused on short-term gain. And that's what impulsivity is. Impulsivity is the unwise prioritization of short-term gain over long-term gain. It's the desire circuit suppressing the better judgment of the control circuit the nucleus accumbens being stronger than the prefrontal cortex. Nucleus accumbens is a very, very old structure from an evolutionary point of view. So really it's our animal nature um, overcoming our human good judgment. And a great example of that, which um, uh, folks might be familiar with, but in case they're not, is the uh, famous cookies and radishes experiment. So do you want to explain uh, to listeners what that was? Yeah, the cookies and radishes experiment is a, um, it's an indication that our willpower is limited. A lot of people think that if you've got a bad habit, um, the only way to overcome it is via willpower. Unfortunately, that never ever works. And the reason is that willpower is only good uh, in very small doses. It's like a muscle that tires out and the cookies and radishes experiment um, demonstrated that. What they did is, they divided people into two groups. Um, each of the volunteers was led into a room where there were fresh baked cookies on the table. Uh, and when I say fresh baked, I mean fresh baked. They baked them in a little toaster oven in the laboratory so that the room was full of the smell of baking chocolate chip cookies. And ooh, that is a lovely smell. Um, next to the bait, uh, next to the plate of these warm cookies is a bowl of radishes. Mm. Um, half of the uh, volunteers were invited to eat the cookies and half were told that they could only eat the radishes. Afterwards, all of them were asked to do a, um, a problem that was impossible. Uh, they, they had to trace out a design without lifting their pencil. It's not obvious that it's impossible, but it is. And they timed how long did they go at it before they gave up? Um, and what they found was that the people who were told they could only eat radishes, who needed to exert willpower to stay away from the cookies, gave up much sooner uh, than the people who were allowed to eat the cookies and didn't need willpower in that situation. Uh, so we see this in real life. If you were on a diet and uh, somebody brings in birthday cake and you're good and you're strong and you say no, you're much more likely to break your diet later in the day because you've used up your allotment of willpower. You took the words out of my mouth. I was just going to say, could that apply in the case of, actually, I was going to say someone studying for final exams or with an important project at work who's on a diet and having to exert willpower to avoid tempting food that folks in the office or the school are bringing in and, you know, performing maybe potentially worse on an exam than someone who can eat whatever they want, you know, and then they have more willpower reserve. So that's, I think that's really interesting. 
That's a great thought. I never thought of that. I never thought of that. You know, I really, yeah. So if you've got something that requires willpower later in the day, you may want to take it easy earlier in the day. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so I, I, I want to shift briefly to, to uh, looking at dopamine and how it factors, factors into long-term happiness because, you know, let's face it, some people are never quite happy. You hear all the time about folks who win the lottery and actually report falling into a clinical depression. I wonder how dopamine might actually figure into this picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when you look at winning the lottery, you're really talking about stress. Uh, stress increases the risk of depression. Um, what does stress mean? Well, you know, basically one of the things stress means is change and it could be good change or bad change. Um, there are few things in life as stressful as getting a divorce, but getting married is, is a close second. Um, going bankrupt is a terrible, terrible thing, but in some ways, so is winning the lottery. Mm. So um, that's very much about stress. It's about extraordinary events in a person's life. But let's look at happiness for a moment under more ordinary conditions. And what people have found about happiness is that everybody seems to have a set point. So um, if you were to um, win a million dollars, you might be very, very happy for a week, a month, maybe two, three months but eventually your happiness would settle down to its set point. Uh, the same thing would happen if something bad happened to you. Um, you know, if you, um, if you had a financial setback, it would make you unhappy for a while, um, but not that long. After a while, you would settle back to your happiness set point. And um, it's very, very difficult to shift this set point. And so we tend to go through life regardless of what happens kind of always at the same level of happiness. I wonder, are you, are you familiar with the, the U-curve of happiness over the course of the parabola, over the course of the life where, where people start out earlier in life pretty happy? And then I, I think it's, a, it's an inverse par- parabola. So th- it goes, it's, it's a, a U. U. Yeah. yeah. So, so I wonder if that um, sort of, uh, you know, plays into this hedonic a- adaptation set point thing where it's like, uh, you know, there's, a, there's always regression towards the mean. So you can go up or down, but on average, you're always going to be, you know, uh, across the straight line. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, children are happier than adults and seniors are happier than younger adults. Mm. Um, I, I think we need to put that in perspective, though. Um, and not jump to the conclusion of thinking that unhappiness, especially in this context, is a bad thing. And, and, and let me just start out by, by giving you this little factoid. Um, married couples who have children, on average, are less happy than married couples who don't have children. Huh. Now, does that mean it's a bad idea to have children in terms of life satisfaction. Well, well, that doesn't make any sense because most couples do wanna have children and couples that have difficulty having children will often go to great lengths and spend very large amounts of money in fertility clinics trying to have children. So what's going on? And the answer is that very large changes that we experience during our midlife Um, changes such as finishing our education and entering the workforce, um, having children, hitting midlife crisis, maybe developing illnesses. All of these are stressors. 
All of these cause unhappiness, but they also cause personal growth. Hmm. Um, as we go through life and we undergo hardships, hardships that make us unhappy, we also grow and we learn to put things in perspective. And, and it is that process of growth that only occurs through a certain amount of suffering that leads to the enhanced happiness um, that older people experience. I think that's really interesting I, because most people sort of uh, think that happiness is, is, is like a, a one size fits all. It's, you know, you can, uh, you, you can quantify happiness as like a single number, but the way that you're framing it, happiness isn't just sort of like a state, it's like almost a process, if I'm understanding you correctly. Um, so it, it sort of shows that you need to take a lot of these, these measures and graphs and you know, time curves with, with a grain of salt because they don't tell the, uh, the, the full picture. Yeah, if you look at the U-shaped curves, the two arms are different. Um, the high one in childhood is a gift. Um, if you're fortunate enough to have a good childhood, which of course many people are not, uh, but if you are, you're taken care of by parents who love you. The other arm, on the other hand, is earned. And it's earned through hard work and suffering that occurs in midlife. And I, I think in many ways, that second arm is more meaningful and, and maybe even better uh, because we do have to suffer to get it. We do have to earn it through hard work. Yeah, no, absolutely. How does, how does the idea of mental time travel figure into this? Does that apply um, to, 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 you know, to folks who are at maybe the, one of the lower points in the curve and they're trying to envision themselves at another point in the curve? You know, mental time travel is really um, about the dopamine control circuit that looks farther into the future than the impulsive desire circuit. Um, we do mental time travel all the time. Um, it, it's a way of choosing options in the present that are going to maximize our well-being in the future. So um, I live in D.C. Let's say that I wanted to go to New York. Uh, I could drive. I could take the bus. I could fly. Um, I could take the train. Which one should I do? Well, as I'm deliberating, I'm going to engage in mental time travel. I'm going to imagine myself sitting on that bus, um, saving a whole lot of money and thinking, is it worth it? Hmm. Um, or on the airplane, saving time, but it's expensive and it's a hassle. So when we're faced with choices, we use our imaginations to actually live the future of what that choice would entail. Um, and that helps us make um, decisions about the future. And we're not sure if any other animal can do that. That might be unique to human beings. Yeah, that's really interesting. It almost reminds me of like regret minimization, which is something that uh, Jeff Bezos and others espouse, like the idea of project yourself uh, you know, 20 years in the future, imagine that you had, you had made all of the possible choices that you could make and then sort of pick the one that results in the most utility or, or satisfaction. Yeah, uh, I think that's very, very good advice. Um, begin with the end in mind. Uh, always think about where are you headed? What's your long-term goal? Um, and um, act to bring those to fruition. But um, you know, people like Jeff Bezos, um, entrepreneurs, successful businessmen, uh, we have to remember these are extremely dopaminergic people. Mm. They would not get where they are without the intelligence dopamine brings, the perseverance, the hard work, uh, the creativity. These people may talk a good talk about being happy. 
they may not be so good though at actually enjoying the things they're working for. Yeah, they might be one of those people that, you know, wins the lottery and expects them to make, you know, make them a lot of, or in Bezos's case, becomes the richest person in the world, expects to be, you know, have a higher, high quality of life, um, but then reports having the same happiness of, as maybe, you know, one of the lowest level employees, who knows? Um, and like you said, it, you know, there's not necessarily one, one single uh, metric for that. I mean, look, yeah, Bezos, richest guy in the world. You think, okay, he reached the finish line. Now he should enjoy it. But, but what's he's doing? He's leaving Amazon and going to um, going to his, his spaceship company because that's not doing well. He's focusing on what's bad in his life rather than what's good. Mm. So maybe my, my favorite part of the book, Dan, was when you used uh, dopamine to make sense of our dreams. What uh, For folks listening, who I'm sure a lot of people are interested in this, what's happening to the dopamine in our brain when we dream? Yeah. So uh, in order to address that, we need to talk about something else related to dopamine, and that's real versus non-real. The present moment is real. And in fact, it's the only thing that's real. Um, The future is not real and the past is not real. Dopamine being concerned with maximizing future resources, um, being concerned with the future um, deals with things that are not real. And that includes not only what's gonna happen tomorrow, it also includes abstract ideas. So when we think about things like justice, beauty, mathematics, the conservation of energy, anything that doesn't have a physical material reality, we're using our dopamine circuits. And that also uh, includes creativity, Uh, thinking about things that never have existed, dreams, are when we engage with a non-reality. And so when we dream, our dopamine circuits are very, very active. And um, we live in this unreal world and it's very closely related to creativity. And it's uh, not unusual that famous inventors, uh, poets, um, singers will say, I came up with this life-changing idea from a dream I had. I mean, you provide so many examples of that in the book and I don't want to, I'm not going to spoil them <laughs> because, uh, you know, to, to your point, lots of brilliant people report it, it came to me in a dream. And um, I actually, I found that interesting. You talk about how the sensation of waking up from a dream is when we were at our most creative. I don't know about you. I actually keep a dream journal next to my bed. I've mentioned this on the podcast before I wake up and I, I jot down before I'm even fully, uh, you know, vigilant and, and aware of my surroundings. I jot down everything I can months later, I'll come back to it. And I'll say, wow, that's a really good idea. I, I never would have you know come up for that if I was awake. So I think there, there, there's something to that. Yeah, when we dream, we think in a completely different way than when we're awake. Um, It's an irrational way. It's an intuitive way. It's um, a creative way. And so, yeah, when you first wake up, the dream may seem like absolute nonsense. And and I think that what you do is wonderful. Um, You write it down. uh, You come back. It percolates a little bit. And um, a lot of times it, it has incredibly insightful ideas that the waking brain never could have come up with on its own. And you also mentioned how there, there's a link between potentially dreaming and, and psychosis. So, so what exactly did you mean by that? Yeah, so psychosis, uh, particularly um, in a mental illness called schizophrenia, does seem to be associated with overactivity of the dopamine circuit. You know, dopamine is, is about a better life about a better future. 
And so it's constantly scanning the environment for things that are going to affect me when I have the opportunity maybe to make more money or to find a new romantic partner or, or to eat something delicious. That's going to affect me and dopamine goes off. If that circuit is faulty and it's going off at inappropriate times, I'm going to have some misunderstandings. I'm going to think that things that have, in reality, nothing to do with me at all are connected to me. And that is the essence of paranoia. Mm. So if I'm walking down the street um, and I see a policeman, I might say that policeman's interested in me. I might think the police are spying on me. Um, I had a patient who um, every time he saw a stop sign, he thought it was a message from his mother telling him to stop thinking about women. So paranoia, which is one element of psychosis, is very closely related to the faulty behavior of dopamine because it makes people think that everything is about them. And I wonder if that sort of completes the, you know, the puzzle, because you, you've probably read a lot and, and listeners have heard a lot about the, you know, maxim that um, madness and insanity go hand in hand. And there's so many examples of that in popular culture. You, you know, you list a number of them in your book, but sort of, you know, the, the brilliant people, the high achievers that we've spoken about that have uh, high, highly dopaminergic personalities um, are also potentially those who maybe can't distinguish between uh, the dream world and reality, like some of the examples you gave. Yeah, yeah, madness and creativity I, I, is, I think, what you meant, right? Yeah, um, it, yeah exactly. It, it's, it's not unusual for the most brilliant inventors, the most brilliant artists, to uh, have mental illness themselves or, or mental illness in a first-degree relative who shares much of their uh, genes. Um, um, Einstein had a son who developed schizophrenia. Uh, James Joyce had um, a daughter or a sister, I, I, I can't remember, who had schizophrenia. Um, I don't know if you've read Joyce, brilliant, but it sounds like something somebody insane would write. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Sir Isaac Newton spent a year um, in a uh, mental institution uh, because he was psychotic. Um, people who have bipolar disorder um, are more likely to have creative careers than the uh, general population. And, and yeah, as you point out, uh, creativity and mental illness go hand in hand. One way I think about it is that in some ways, these people have a brain that's like a high performance sports car. Hmm. It's capable of doing amazing things, but it does break down easily. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a really interesting uh, visual. Something else in the book that you talk about is you know dream incubation, the idea of of solving problems in your sleep. So for listeners who have not yet read the book, um, if they have a problem either at work in their relationships, um, it, you know something in their life that they want to solve, how do you recommend that they use dream dream incubation? Well, what they want to do um, is to simulate these dopamine circuits to address the particular problem that they have. So the first thing they need to do is make it very, very important to their future uh, success. The more important something is, the more dopamine is interested in it. Um, so dopamine is gonna be a lot more interested in the prospect of you getting an important promotion than it is in you picking up a hamburger for lunch because you're hungry. Mm -hmm. So before you go to bed, you know, spend some time thinking about why is this problem so important? Spend some time imagining what would my life look like if this problem were solved 
as opposed to what would this look like if my if the problem were not solved? And don't just think about it intellectually, engage in that mental time travel. Imagine um, yourself in the situation of solved versus not solved. What do you see? What do you hear? What might you even smell? Mm. Make it as vivid as possible. Uh, write some things down. For some reason, and I don't understand why this is, but for some reason drawing a picture of the problem seems to help even more than, um, than writing down words. And then one of the most important things to do is exactly what you do, have that pad of paper right near your bed because you can have the most vivid, emotionally moving dream imaginable and 60 seconds later, it's gone and you can't remember it at all. So you wanna capture it the moment you open your eyes. That's amazing advice. I've never heard about dream incubation before. It's so interesting. I wonder if, if it's, I wonder, you know, are you pursuing with dream incubation where you fall asleep, you're thinking about the problem, you wake up, maybe you have an answer. Are you pursuing an actual cognizable solution to, to like a problem, like an answer, or is it more a feeling of resolution or closure? Um, I'm, I'm just curious, I guess maybe it depends on the, the type of problem that, 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 you know, that you're trying to solve. Yeah, you know, dreams most likely are, are going to solve a problem by giving you a gut feeling to what's mm. right. You know, when we're faced with a very big decision, we often say, hey, let me sleep on it, right? Somebody offers you a job and there's pros and cons. You say, let me sleep on it. You, you wake up in the morning, you got a gut feeling about what's right. So it can be a very specific answer. Take the job, don't take the job, but it does come in the form of this gut feeling. Um, and, and, and that's often what dreams give us. Yeah, no, for, for sure. I think, uh, you know, lots of listeners can relate to that. Um, the, the very last thing I want to ask you here, I, I, have you heard of the 24-hour dopamine fast? Are you familiar with that? Yes, I have. Um, for, for folks that, that maybe aren't, aren't as familiar, this is the idea that, uh, and I don't know if this is the variation you've heard, of, heard about, Dan. It's, it's been, you know, uh, sweeping YouTube in recent years. But you take 24 hours, no internet, no TV, no reading, no socialization, no drugs or alcohol, no complex foods really no exposure to any stimuli. You just sort of reset your brain for 24 hours. So how might this work? Uh, well, it doesn't work, uh, to be honest. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, it, it's analogous to a weight loss diet in which you eat nothing but cabbage soup for a month. Um, it, it's a fad. It's a trend. It, it, it's traumatic. It's exciting. And it's nonsense. Um, that's unfortunately just not the way the brain works. Um, the unfortunate reality of neuroscience is that um, the brain is highly resistant to change. Hmm. It, it can change, but it takes a very, very long time and it takes a lot of hard work. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, think about how long does it take to learn how to play the guitar well? How long does it take to learn a foreign language? These are things that rewire the brain in positive ways, and it requires daily practice, daily dedication. These kind of heroic one-offs don't do anything at all. I, I got to admit, I'm, I'm a little sad to hear that because um, I had been planning to to do this in the next couple of weeks. I, I you know watched videos and, and read a lot about people who who've you know said that it's cleansed their mind. It's almost been um, akin to 
Uh, some people report taking uh, hallucinogenic drugs. And I, I did an episode on that with another uh, neuroscientist and, and having that sort of reset their brain. And I was hopeful that the 24 hour dopamine fast would do the same, but it sounds like it might take more like intermittent, you know, efforts over the course of months. As no, no, just the opposite. It, it takes long-term consistent efforts. Okay. Um, and so, you know, if a lot of people, um, one of the things they avoid most of all is social media. Look, if you think social media is bad for you, the only way you're going to get it out of your life is if you consistently avoid it. Hmm. Um, it's the same with sugar. If you take one day and don't eat sugar, that's not going to cure a sugar habit. Um, you really need to get sugar out of your life and suffer for one, two, three months until you finally lose your taste for it. Uh, you, you know, think, think of it this way. Think of an alcoholic um, who says, um, I'm going to be sober one day a week. That's not going to work. Mm. You know, even if the alcoholic says, I'm going to be sober six days a week, um, being exposed to that alcohol is going to cause a full-blown relapse. And, and that's dopamine. Um, if you want to overcome a dopamine-driven bad habit, you need to root it out completely and suffer for weeks, maybe months before it no longer gnaws at you. Exactly. And like you say, you lose the taste for it. I remember I was reading a book. Um, I think it was Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism, where he talks about uh, how he goes off social media for, for months. And then he comes back to it and he looks at his phone. He no longer has the desire, the urge to scroll through the newsfeed infinitely. He sort of, you know, realizes, wow, this is actually sort of pointless. Same thing with sugar and food. People who report cutting out processed foods, they bite into an Edmonds donut and they're like, wow, this tastes like it has a hundred ingredients in it. So I think there's yeah. something to that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's not going to work if you if you do it one day a week. Um, you got to make the big commitment and say, "Out of my life." Mm, definitely, definitely. I think I think I think folks, uh, you know, to people listening, that that sounds like something that might be worth worth the effort. Uh, Dan, listen, this has been a wonderful conversation. To all those listening, be sure to check out Dan's book, "The Molecule of More: How a Single Chemical in Your Brain Drives Love, Sex, and Creativity." and will determine the fate of the human race. We covered some of the book on here, but there's still a lot that we didn't talk about, like the idea of why it's not necessarily better to have loved and lost rather than to never have loved at all, how dopamine impacts uh, someone's political ideologies, there's, and, and all of the you know anecdotes and, and vignettes that we alluded to. Uh, Dan, I'm sure my listeners want to know where they can go to follow you and learn more about your work in general. Um, they can uh, go to danielzlieberman.com, and uh, there's some information there. Awesome. Awesome. Dr. Dan Lieberman, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Dr. Daniel Lieberman. There were a lot of really interesting takeaways from our conversation. Like I always say, if you zoned out during the episode and you want to know the number one takeaway, I think what was most interesting is the, is the factoid about the dopamine system firing rate. Basically, when the dopamine system is at rest, as Dr. Lieberman said, it fires three to five times per, per second. When it's excited, when you know, you're know you anticipating a reward, like uh, the first bite of a slice of pizza or the first kiss from the, the you know man or woman you're dating, it zooms up to 20 to 30 times per second. And when an expected reward fails to materialize, someone snatches that pizza away or you know your, your boyfriend or girlfriend refuses to kiss you, that firing rate drops to zero. 
and the result is you feel terrible. So at rest, the dopamine system fires three to five times per second. When excited, it's 20 to 30 times per second. And when the reward fails to materialize, it drops to zero. And I think this sort of explains a lot of um, you know human behavior in the context of how you can be so profoundly disappointed when your expectations don't align with your your reality when you know just just how how devastated you are when you know your your birthday comes up and and you don't get as many wishes from your friends as you want or uh over the holidays you're expecting a specific gift and um you know you don't get that that gift from your loved ones i think i think that through the lens of dopamine you can really understand uh you know why those those subjective feelings those sensations uh are as as strong and uh are as strong as they are uh, there's something else from the book that we didn't get a chance to bring up, and that's the distinction between wanting something and liking something. Um, and this is sort of related to what Dr. Liebman said about here and now neurotransmitters versus future-oriented neurotransmitters. So dopamine uh, is essentially concerned with the future, with, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing someone on Saturday. I'm looking forward to a vacation next week. That's wanting something. I want vacation. I want to see um, my friend but liking something is really a here and now. That would be like like the serotonin uh, example that we spoke about. You know, I like I like ice cream. I like ice cream now. Presently, I like ice cream. Not I want ice cream. I'm I'm looking forward to ice cream in the future. I like ice cream now. I like I like baseball. I like watching the Mets. That doesn't mean that I want to watch the Mets in the future. It's it's more of a of a present oriented um, feeling. That's you know something that that I like to do right now. And <clears throat> as Dr. Liebman says in the book. You know, part of of being content with what you have and appreciating and just being more appreciative is moving from wanting a tangible thing to just generally liking something. So I thought that was that was a pretty pretty insightful distinction that that he brings up. Um, we talked a lot about the different applications of, of dopamine from, you know, dopamine um, being responsible for addiction of fast food to social media. There's also in the book, he talks about how dopamine reinforces our addiction to pornography, which I think is really interesting and also flows into what Dr. Lieberman mentioned about um, uh, dopamine and uh, how it's tied to sort of instant gratification and how, how that plays into it. And we spoke about the idea of, of long-term happiness, right? Like how no matter what changes you go through in your lifetime, everyone sort of uh, reverts back to a set point of happiness after uh, positive events or negative events. It's just you, you come back to the mean. And it calls to mind this, this notion of a hedonic treadmill, which maybe you've heard of in other contexts. But if you haven't, the hedonic treadmill is the tendency of humans to quickly return to a stable level of happiness despite major positive or negative events or life changes. Um, so you sort of, you know, you get a dog and you think that it's going to make you a lot happier. And uh, as someone who just, who just got a puppy, it, it, you know, it has made me happier, but that effect kind of wears off after like the first week or two. Um, same thing with a new relationship or a purchase. You know, you buy a car, you buy an air fryer, a new computer. Um, you expect that it's going to have a long-term impact on your happiness. But the reality is with the hedonic treadmill, uh, you just kind of return to that set point. So, you know, it also kind of, uh, it also kind of, you know, reminds you that, and this is a theme throughout the whole conversation, like just to temper your expectations, right? Like don't, anticipate more than is reasonable uh you know given given the circumstances what else did i want to mention here uh we t we spoke a lot about dopamine and dreams and uh i mean we could have done a whole episode on this alone um sort of the le the the link between 
dopamine and and dreaming and how I think I think Dan said when we are at our most creative when we're right waking up uh, right when we wake up from a dream and he writes in the book that many people have had the experience of waking from a dream feeling as if they were caught between two worlds thinking is more fluid making leaps from topic to topic unconstrained by the rules of logic in fact, some people report that they experience their most creative thoughts in this crack between the two worlds. So that's a quote from uh, from Molecule of More, and I I can relate to that. I'm sure many of you can as well. Um, you know, the moment when you're waking up from a dream and you're kind of groggy, you're you're dissociated, you're you're not sure like where you are. A moment ago, you were uh, you know on on the be- Venice Beach and you were flying a kite, and then. You wake up a moment later and, and you're in your bedroom. You're looking at your four walls. That that crack that he speaks about, we're at our most creative. Um, that you know, that's that's where I like to take advantage of whatever's floating in my mind and just tether it to reality by writing it down or or speaking it, or whatever I can do to remember it. Um, so yeah, that was I I, I love I love that part of the book. And then the idea of like schizophrenia is like living in a dream. Um, and there's so much uh, research to back that up that people who have schizophrenia and and similar psychotic disorders can't really distinguish between the dream world and the real world uh which is which is alarming but um yeah the book you know there's a lot of of anecdotes and uh i'm I'm not going to spoil all of them because i I do want you to check out the molecule of more but uh you know dan mentions a number of of people who uh, cite dreaming as a source of their artistic creativity. So Paul McCartney said that he heard the, the melody for Yesterday in a Dream. Um, the song uh, It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. Uh, the band said that they they had heard the uh, that song in a dream. It's, it's kind of crazy to, to think about. And then dream incubation is something that I got to I gotta put into practice um, because Dan's right, like, like sleeping on it, sleeping on a, an important decision. It actually could you know it, it could work and i'm sure lots of people uh, sort of su- subscribe to that way of, of solving their problems um one more thing that i wanted to mention and 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 i know this is a lot but there's just there's so much uh substance in in the book and to the conversation dan has a section of the book where he talks about why geniuses are jerks and this is almost like like a a, a caricature you see in in television with sheldon from the big bang theory or Elon Musk, how these people have robotic personalities. They're just mentally, they're freaks of nature, like like beyond um, genius, but they have poor social functioning. And the reason for this is actually, according to Dan, according to the molecule of more, high levels of dopamine suppress the functioning of the here and now neurotransmitters. So we need neurotransmitters like serotonin for empathy, to understand what's going on in other people's minds. Um, and... As you know from watching The Big Bang Theory, uh, Sheldon doesn't understand sarcasm and he can't you know, read social situations. I'm sure that there are people in your life that are like that as well. And, uh, and it sort of demonstrates the, the double-edged sword of, of dopamine. Yeah, if you're dopaminergic, you're driven and you're motivated and you're highly intelligent, you're highly creative. But the other side of it is you might be poor at um, human relationships. And that's why, you know, according to Dan Autism, uh, high levels of dopamine activity are, are also, um, you know, uh, present in in folks who uh, have uh, who've been diagnosed with autism. And the last thing to mention is that dopamine is a blessing and a curse. People with abnormally high levels of dopamine, as I alluded to earlier, 
they have incredible creative achievements, but they, they suffer from mental illness. Uh, like I mentioned in episode 24, we, we talked all about, um, you know, madness and, and uh, creativity going hand in hand. Uh, we talked about Hemingway. We talked about Howard Hughes. The book uh, Molecule of More mentions Isaac Newton, how, you know, as brilliant as he was and, and the, as, as unparalleled as his achievements were to the sciences, he was haunted by insanity. He spent hours trying to find hidden messages in the Bible. He wrote over a million words on religion and the occult. Uh, he was obsessively searching for the Philosopher's Stone. And he actually became fully psychotic at the age of 50 and spent a year in an insane asylum. Um, and again and again, brilliant people who struggle with discerning what's real and what's not. Uh, Beethoven, Darwin, Van Gogh, O'Keefe, Tesla, uh, chess master Bobby Fischer, so many others who make significant contributions likely had elevated levels of dopamine that contributed to their brilliance, but also potentially made them more likely for... Um, you know, to have these, uh, these psychopathological conditions. Um, so the, I guess the takeaway, one, one of the, the prime takeaways from the conversation has to be that dopamine is dangerous, right? Like that, that could be, that could be the title of the episode. Dopamine is dangerous because of all the risks that, that I mentioned. Um, so definitely check out Dan's book. Uh, it was a really fun read and I think all of you guys would get a lot out of it. So in the coming weeks, I have some exciting guests lined up, uh, for the pod as well as next week, you guessed it, a bonus episode with some familiar faces uh, that's coming up next on Nervous Habits. Thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. Write to the pod via email, nervoushabitspodcast.gmail.com. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube. Just search Nervous Habits Podcast. Follow the pod on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. And remember, next time you have a big project at work or an exam for school, maybe put the diet on hold for a day. After all, willpower is a finite resource. Take care and stay nervous.